if I'm, I'm playing for a keystone I've never seen before, as soon as somebody pulls a pistol out of a night table drawer, I know it's going to end in about 90 seconds. Because <laughs> they start firing in the air for no apparent reason. It's like, that's it. That's it. I'm getting the gun. <laughs> Greetings across whatever you listen to podcasts on. This is the Silent Film Music Podcast, episode 41. I'm Ben Modell. I'm a silent film accompanist and historian. This is the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. Hi, this is Kerr Lockhart, co-host and co-producer of the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. Welcome. In this episode, number 41, we're bringing you the second and final part of a conversation we recorded way back in March of 2021 when live performances were slowly starting to resume. It's on the subject of live scoring for the virtual cinema, and naturally we ramble around some other topics. We hope you enjoy it. For this year that you've been playing distantly, um, yeah. have you played films that you haven't played before? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of the times we'll get to Sunday and like, oh, I forgot to preview this. Oh, but I'm not going to tell anybody. <laughs> but I, 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 there's a lot of the shorts that I'm sight reading. Well, and, yeah. comedy shorts I should think would be one thing. That's kind of a mode that you could go into reactively. But I'm thinking so much as we've been talking about films that, uh, that uh, curators like to program and yeah. when you don't have you don't have the room there with the people in the room with you, you at least can bring with you the memory of I know yeah. how this works. It's it's a different thing. I mean, with the, with the features and dramas, it's usually something I know. But there have been films that I played for where I've done a live stream for an art house cinema, where I had forgotten to preview the film. <laughs> It went fine, but the first time, I'll be honest, the first time I played for the Eagle virtually, I felt a little bit more at sea. I thought, oh, God, that went really bad. We get off the stream, Mana said, that was wonderful. Well, it's a particularly tricky film for tone. I mean, even as a film right. by itself, it's it's playing a delicate game of tone. For folks who yeah. don't know, it's a, it's a mid-career, I was going to say late-career Valentino, but his career is so short, we really yeah. have to call it mid-career. But it has a self-awareness. Yeah, there's a it's almost there's a little tongue in cheek, but not as far as Fairbanks goes with it. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely you know it's it's a it's a great Valentino film, and it's one of these things. It's nobody runs anymore. You know the Eagle. I thought, oh yeah, I know the Eagle. It's fine. And I watched the first third of it, and I thought oh, I can I can take the rest of this. And there were hunks of it. I I I was kind of sight reading, but pretty much I, I'm not throwing something at myself that I've never ever ever scene except for like the comedy shorts but and uh, that feels authentic to me anyway because i should imagine yeah. that your neighborhood pianist probably hadn't seen the latest mermaid comedy either <laughs> yeah not till not till it arrived to the theater many years ago uh, at a series that joe ransky put together called meet the music makers at the new york public libraries at the, at the Donnell library branch dave knutson who's an organist from the midwest who passed away a few years ago he had met a woman who had played for films in the silent era. And she said a lot of the times, you know, she'd show up on Monday, look at the lobby cards, look at the stills and the window cases. And I'm like, oh, I kind of get an idea what this film is like. And then go in and play the first show. And 
the second and third show would go a lot better. And if you have to shift in the middle, you shift in the middle and, and shift gears and make the film work. I mean, except in the larger theaters where you had the matinee conductor conducting an afternoon show while the manager of the theater and the main conductor were in a screening room downstairs or upstairs previewing the film that had just arrived from the exchange and was going to open the next day, and they were compiling the new score. But if you were a soloist, you would just walk in and see what happened. Have you at any time, just for your own, maybe just to refresh your ideas or something, when you're looking at a film that has a published, compiled score? Have you ever looked at it and said, hmm, what did they do? What were they going for? Not really. The style of scoring that was employed in the silent film era was a lot more repetitive, and it would reference pop tunes where the title of the song referenced what's happening on screen the way Carl Stalling would do all the time. And a lot of those scores don't hold up that well. If you go to the Silent Film Sound and Music Archive, or sfsma.org, Dr. Kendra Leonard has put together this amazing database of stuff. And there is the original score composed and compiled for Birth of a Nation by Joseph Carl Briel, or Briel, however you pronounce it. And uh, I looked through it once just for the heck of it. And what's interesting about it is that there is a, a theme for every character, except for Henry Walthall's character. And he's the main character in the film. And yet the little colonel doesn't have his own theme. A lot of the original scores, some people swear by them. Uh, I think I've asked Rodney Sauer once, and I said, do you use the original cue sheet? He said, no, because you know, a lot of the times <laughs> the cue sheets are not great or you can't find the music, and he'll compile. He's got a, a huge collection of, of that stuff, and will compile something from that. But if, if you hear the Paragon Ragtime Orchestra, you're hearing the cue sheet. Mm-hmm. I think because film scoring changed in that time period when it kind of dropped out in 2930, and then when it comes back in in the mid-30s, it, it kind of picks up on what Steiner was doing, which is borrowing from practices that come from opera, where you're not beating people over the head with leitmotifs. You're using them, but there's more underscore. You know, some people really like this the original score for Metropolis, and I find it a little repetitive and also so there's one musical motif in it that means something different today in the 20s and 30s the use of the whole tone scale which now that i'm at the piano i can play it which is, yeah, sorry. yeah so a half so a half tone is from here to here and a whole tone is from here to here so a whole tone of scale is Now, in the 20s and 30s, that meant modern. And this is something new and wonderful. But when you hear that today, uh, uh, that's like... You think, oh no, here comes the monster. Well, it's also, it's also was very much favored by the Impressionists, and it can mean dreamy. Yeah, so the thing is that there's a lot of whole tone stuff in the original score for Metropolis, but that film isn't a, a monster film. Per se, and, and even the opening titles to, to Modern Times if it has that big whole tone scale. And it's meant to be this wonderful technology. And, and, and I remember when I was nine years old seeing this film for the first time, thinking, oh no! <laughs> and I, there's this, I have this image of you know, this clock and this 
sound of terror. It, it, it is, yeah. The, and so it, cha- it changes over time, and so different feels uh, and sounds may mean something different to people. And this is one of the things that Lee always talked about. He said, you know, as far as using established music or well-known music, is that people already have their association with whatever that is. And so if you play something that people already know, you have no control over how they're going to interpret it. As an example of the way composers used the whole tone scale in the 1920s to create a certain mood, here's the 1927 composition by Big Spiderbeck, In a Mist. That was In a Mist by Big Spiderbeck, arranged and conducted by Joseph Bird. The Silent Film Music Podcast is brought to you by Undercrank Productions, home of the neglected and unexpected in classic film for the home viewer. The accidentally preserved DVD series has already made available many rare silent film treasures that survive only in home movie formats. But for these copies, they would be lost films. Volume 4 focuses on films distributed in 9.5mm, once popular in France and Britain. None of the eight titles in this over two-hour release are available anywhere else. The stars include Warner Baxter, Colleen Moore, Bobby Ray, Glenn Tryon, Mae Marsh, and Flora Finch in a short directed by Dave Fleischer. Slapstick, romance, and melodrama are all represented here. Accidentally Preserved Volume 4 received a recommended rating from DVD Talk, calling it another great collection well worth checking out. Ben Modell provides the scores, and they are great. Made possible by the USC Hume Hefner Moving Picture Archive and its dedicated archivist, Dino Everett, Accidentally Preserved Volume 4 is available at all usual places, Amazon, Deep Discount, TCM, Critics' Choice, 
and undergroundproductions.com. A perfect gift for the film buff who thought they had everything. Now back to our conversation. So to finish up this notion of yeah. the new world of playing in a in an audience vacuum, playing to an audience that you yeah. can't see or hear, you've now done it for a year. This is an utterly new ground. Yes, I have. I've done like 70 live streams between the watch party and things I've done for uh, art house cinemas, plus my class. So it's maybe more like, by this point, 75 or so, these live streams. So, um, uh, you know, that, that can't help uh, affect you. How have things changed? About a week ago, I recorded a score for a film called Cenere, C-E-N-E-R-E, meaning Ashes, starring Eleanor, Eleanor Deuce being co-presented by the Italian Cultural Institute and the National Gallery of Art. And the film is a being shown in a new restoration by the Cineteca Milano. And it's a film from the early teens, an Italian film. And two things happened. One is I thought, oh, I've never seen this film before. I'll take a look at it. And I start looking at it, and about 10 seconds in, I'm like, I know this film. I played for this film somewhat recently, and I thought it was at MoMA. We looked it up on, on MoMA's film programming website, and sure enough, I was right. Uh, these were programs that I think Iris Barry had originally put together that were compilations of different uh, early films or early directors or early performers. There was one called Great Actresses of the Past. There's a sequence from The Loves of Queen Elizabeth with a Sarah Bernhardt, and a couple of others, and uh, it, I thought it was an excerpt from Cenere, and it turns out it's the entire film. So I had already gone on a ride with this film twice with an audience, and it's a very quiet, simple story about a woman and her young son, and they're separated. He grows up, comes back and tries to find her. They reunite. It's sad. She passes away. But... As I sat here recording, again, I set up my projector, so I have a nice big image, and I have my keyboard and my, my very nice Steinway samples, and I'm playing and watching it, and I, I found myself in a mindset of, it's just me and the other person watching this. And I, it's for some reason, it's, maybe it's just easier with a dramatic film than it is with a comedy short, but I found myself not playing as hard on the keys and not as loud and, and much simpler. Just more, much more subtle and holding notes, letting them ring a little bit. But this was something I was able to do in at one sitting, which is unusual for me. Usually I do it in hunks or I'll hit a bunch of clams and I'm like, all right, stop, I'll pick it up, I'll start back two minutes earlier. There was just something this that happened. You know, Again, I'm watching the film. It's coming into my eyes and my head, my left and mostly right brain is coming out my hands and then cycling around again. Whatever I had done when I played for it at MoMA in Titus 2, which is 200 and something, 250 seats, the film is more intimate and the audience is much more intimate. My doing so many of the live streams and trying to remind myself over and over, you know, you're sitting next to them on their sofa, helped me play more quietly. And if I'm going to do a comedy short, it's going to probably be a different experience. I found 
that I was able to go for longer stretches without stopping than I had ever before. And I think having just sat down and, and done so many of the, the watch party shows where you can't stop, it's somewhere between a live performance where you figure, well, no one's ever going to hear this again. <laughs> They'll forget it when the lights come up. And a recording where, oh my gosh. <laughs> and somewhere in the middle of that is what live streaming is like. The other part of live streaming is that I'm also functioning as a television director during the show. So I have this set up on my laptop, which is perpendicular to me, and it's running the Mimo Live software, which kind of looks like a television control room. And so I'm looking around and making sure I get a thumbs up from Mona so I know that we haven't lost a signal or she hasn't gotten a text from Susan like Steve's picture went out. And sometimes she'll hold up a note for me and I'll play with one hand and, <laughs> and fix things. Or So I have this other mindset that's going on at the same time and I've just gotten so used to it. It's made me do something I've been trying to do for years, which is to play less. And I actually have a little blue card that has, in big letters, you can always play less. Well, how Mozart? An excellent effort. Occasionally, it seems to have, um, how shall one say directly? Too many notes, Your Majesty. Exactly. Very well put. Too many notes. I don't understand. My dear young man, don't take it too hard. Your work is ingenious. And there are simply too many notes. That's all. Just cut a few and it'll be perfect. As an example of Ben playing less, albeit recorded a number of years ago, Here's a couple of minutes from his score for a 1920 industrial film called The Making of a Stetson. That was a few minutes from Ben Modell's score for The Making of a Stetson. In the first of the specials Ernie Kovacs did in 1961 for that were aired on ABC, he refers to television as an intimate vacuum. <laughs> and 
I've always thought of that because he has this amazing demeanor. He always pitched his performance into the camera, even in front of a live audience, as if he was just talking to you over, uh, on your sofa. How many people? How many people uh, in that rating? How many people watch the show? About 10, 12 million people. There are 10, 12, 10 to 12 million people watching right now. And I got a hole in my sock. <laughs> Honest to goodness, I just put my socks on. Wait, look. Just show you down here. See that? 10 to 12 million people watching, and I got a hole in my sock. That's graceful. But that's a. Uh, Mrs. Kovacs will do that tonight when she finishes singing and fooling around and wasting her time on television. I spent several months trying to adjust my performance energy up and down to get something that I was, that was, I was comfortable with that was also informal to people watching, but I'm trying to do the same thing with, the, with my playing. And I say trying because I haven't quite gotten it yet, but what I'm going for is playing in an intimate vacuum, and, and it, that's come across over into my recording work. You know, one of, there's a number of things that have come out of doing this, as difficult and stressful as it is to do all of these things at live. I'd still rather do that than pre-record. And it'll be wonderful to take what you've learned back into those theaters. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be interesting. I mean, one of the things I'm looking forward to most about that is being able to show up at a cinema and then sit there and have my coffee. And then when it's time for the show to start, I go to the piano and wait for the lights to go down. And somebody else handles all the booth stuff. Because right now I'm the booth and the accompanist simultaneously. If there's something, there's a hiccup in the image, that's on you and you're playing for the film. Yeah. The Silent Comedy Watch Party, every Sunday, 3 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time. And do go to my website, silentfilmmusic.com. Get on my email list uh, so you'll be apprised on a weekly basis of what we're showing on the watch party, as well as any upcoming live stream shows I and, may and have. And please, uh, go to the blog and sign up for the email. Ben's been blogging yeah. like crazy. I'm really trying to blog on the topic of things that I have come to understand and believe about the, what the language of silent film is and the reason it still works, even though we're looking at movies from 100 years ago. And and just to get it out there on paper, so to speak, just as a way to, for me to process it myself, there's a lot about silent film itself that isn't really laid out somewhere for, for people. And there's a lot of misunderstandings about what it is, like that it's just movies with no sound. But if you go to silentfilmmusic.com and navigate over to the blog, there's a separate email list for the blog, and you'll get something in your inbox every time I post something. It's been fun to do, and, and definitely check that out. And whatever podcasting platform you listen to this on, do post a review. I'm sure everybody who whose podcast you listen to tells you to do that, but it does uh, help work the system of the algorithms and get this recommended to people who didn't know they were looking for it but are are, are pleased that they did. So it's up to us fans to help get the word out about anything. And mostly we're, we're glad you're listening and, and we'll try to get this happening a little bit more frequently. Thanks everybody for listening. You've been listening to the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live or now live-streamed performances 
uh, of accompaniments to silent films. This has been the Silent Film Music Podcast, episode 41. I'm Ben Modell. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you.